If you want to turn back there, stay opened up to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, that'll be the text for preaching today. It's already been read for us. Great passage on baptism. I started this um, last week, of course, this idea of means of grace. Ordinary means of grace is what we talked about last week, which we defined as any activity, well, means of grace as any activity within the fellowship of the church of God that God uses to give more grace to Christians. So in other words, the means of grace are physical means that God uses to grow us spiritually. And I believe it's important, as I said last week, that we talk about Christian growth in the context of being together. So much emphasis these days have been put on personal Christianity, personal relationship with Christ. But for the most part of church history, the Christian faith would never be discussed in isolation from the church. We emphasize things such as quiet times, devotions, personal devotions, personal growth, conferences, Bible studies, book studies, and none of that is bad in itself, but in the process, unfortunately, we have done so to such a degree that we have separated the idea of spiritual Christian spiritual growth from the body of Christ so that your growth as a Christian is something that you do on your own time, and it's not something that's happening here when we gather like this. And reading the Bible is important. Studying is important. Praying at home, fellowshipping at home with your family, studying the Bible at home and prayer time, all those things, reading books are important. But when we read the Bible and study it, I think we discover God's intention for the Christian life is to be one that's lived out together and not in isolation. I mean, that's the glory of the church, right? We talk about a lot of these persecuted Christians that we pray for Oftentimes, they're separated from their families, from their church, put in prison. And the thing they long for the most is to be back with the body of Christ. The means that God has given us for our spiritual growth come through the local church. And specifically, I mentioned this last week, in the Reformed tradition, we believe the best Christian growth and maturity come through what has been called the ordinary means of grace. And we talked about them. We named them. Now, you can find a different list for the means of grace. Just about any command in the New Testament that we are given in the church could be a means of grace, and it is. We've already participated in some of it today. We've sang together. We've read the Scripture. We've heard them read together. We've prayed together. Those are means of grace. The ordinary means sort of extracted from those in a Reformed tradition would include the word, so what I'm doing right now, about to do, breaking the word or preaching the word, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and then most lists would also, in Baptist tradition especially, would include prayer and discipline. In other words, we would conclude that you're not really having a church, what could be called a church, unless these essential means of ordinary, uh, ordinary means of grace are present. I had somebody just this week, as I often do, quote to me, from Matthew 18 about, well, you know, we're two or three together, gathered together. And that can mean anything to anybody. But in the context of Matthew 18, it's specifically talking about church discipline when two or three are gathered together. So for Baptists, for most of Baptist history, a church has to be 
a, a, a group of people, it can be two or three or more, that meet together under the preached word of God, who practice baptism of conversions, who partake in the Lord's Supper and pray together, and practice church discipline. So that's why those specifically are pulled out as the ordinary, basic means. But the major reason I wanted to talk about these means of grace was not to pull all these things out individually and talk about them, but specifically, I wanted to talk about the two means of grace that we refer to as the two ordinances of the church, which, of course, are baptism and the Lord's Supper. So from these ordinary means or this list of means of grace, we extract these two, and I want to just try to dissect them in greater detail. And today, of course, if you haven't figured out, we are looking at baptism. We read that passage in Romans 6, one of the greatest passages on baptism, but we know that Jesus said in the Great Commission, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you. So the first order in making disciples is to baptize. Baptize converts. We must do that. It's very important. Very, very important. Essential, in fact, to Christianity is baptizing converts. We call ourselves Baptists, for goodness sake. We believe in baptism, right? In our confession, the 1689 Confession, I want you to hear how they define baptism. These are our Baptist forefathers. Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to, baptize, to those baptized. It is a sign of their fellowship with him in his death and resurrection, of their being grafted into him, of remission of sins, and of submitting themselves to God through Jesus Christ to live and to walk in the newness of life. Now, that's a lot. We just have a tendency to say baptism is a sign. It's a sign, but it's a sign of a lot of things. And I think, and I want to point this out, and I've been guilty of not making enough out of baptism. Just like we've been guilty of not making enough out of the Lord's Supper, which is why we're trying to get this thing right. And I've tried to make more out of baptism. As some of you know, in recent days, when we baptize, we try to get together, have a meal. We try to celebrate, but maybe we still don't make enough out of it. The men who wrote our confession in the late 1600s, the 17th century, they were highlighting the places that they differed in belief from those around them. We know that's why we have this confession. Now, there are other confessions at this time by Protestants, and we're familiar with those, the Westminster Confession, which is Presbyterian, and even the Savoy Confession, which was congregational. And a lot of us borrowed and took from each other, and they're a lot alike in a lot of ways. But this is one of the places that Baptists separated themselves. In the area of the two ordinances, baptism and the supper, there's a lot taken exactly the same as the Westminster and the Savoy, but there are specific dif differences, and I want to highlight them for you briefly because I think this is very important for you to know. I thought this was fascinating, and I hope you will find it the same. Many will assume that the Baptists used the word ordinance instead of sacrament to separate themselves from the Roman Catholic Church, right? Because that's what was happening in the 17th century. The Protestant Reformation, these Protestants were protesting the Catholic Church, so they want to make sure, hey, in case you're wondering, we're not Catholic. We are Protestant. 
And they do a great job of that, especially in the next section, Lord's Supper. They specifically say what the Catholic Church does with the, with the Supper is wrong. We don't do that. Nothing, these, the bread's not magically becoming Jesus and all these things. You'll, we'll see that when we look at it. And there's other places in the confession where the Baptists are clearly saying, hey, we're not Catholic. I mean, in one place they say the Pope is the Antichrist. So in case you're wondering, they're very clear. We're not Catholic. But in this specific instance, they didn't change the word from sacrament to ordinance in order to separate themselves from the Roman Catholics. In fact, it's not a bad word. Sacrament's not. But Baptist historian and professor James Renahan suggests the reason for a Baptist using ordinance here rather than sacrament was to separate them from the Presbyterians more than the Catholics. Because you remember the major difference in baptism between Baptists and Presbyterians would be, and we talked about, we, we read this in our Baptist catechism a while ago. Do we baptize babies and infants? No. Why? We read why. Because there's neither command nor an example to do so, right? We call what we believe about baptism credo-baptism. We believe only baptizing, as we read again in our, our uh, catechism, those who have confessed their sins or repented of sin and believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, that's credo-baptism. Pedo-baptism would be those who believe in baptizing infants, not for their salvation, but they see it as a sign of the new covenant. So what... I mean, not as a way that they don't believe babies are saved through the baptism. It's very complicated. I don't want to talk about that as much as I want to highlight this difference here. Sacrament, as I mentioned, is not a bad word. It means sacred. So to say that the baptism and the supper are sacred or a visible sign of an inward grace, that's true. The problem was that the Catholic Church had taken sacraments and created something known as sacerdotalism, or making the sacrament something superstitious that would even um, have saving efficacy. So they believe that the supper and baptism and any other thing they call a sacrament is a means by which God brings salvation to you. He looks at your efforts and says, that's good, and now I will save you because of your efforts. But the word sacrament just means sacred. So in the Westminster and the Savoy, they use sacrament all over the place and in older baptist writings apart from the confession they used the word sacrament all the time they weren't afraid of it but here specifically they are using the word ordinance because of what it means an ordinance means simply something decreed or prescribed or ordained so for Baptists, the one being given the ordinance must be capable of obeying the ordinance. So they like using that phrase, that term, better than sacrament because what they're fighting against here and separating themselves from is we don't baptize infants or offer them the Lord's Supper or expect them to obey any of the ordinance of Scripture where any command of Jesus could be called an ordinance to the church because they're not capable of obeying it yet. But once they're capable, 
then they are under the responsibility of of obedience. So if you notice again, the first sentence I read you from our Baptist Confession of Faith, it says, Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ. So what they're saying is, since baptism and the Lord's Supper are appointments of Jesus in the New Covenant, they must be defined by the New Covenant Scriptures. It would be inappropriate to define a New Covenant ordinance by primary reference to the Old Covenant Scriptures. Because in, John, in Mark 1, one, for example, John the Baptist came declaring the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In his baptism, John's baptism institutes the ordinance associated with the gospel. Now, if that's clear as mud, the point is this. You can't say we baptize infants because the New Testament sign of baptism is equivalent to the Old Testament sign of circumcision because you don't define New Testament terms by the Old Testament. We interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. Now, we can look at those shadows and say, okay, circumcision was a shadow of the covenant sign of baptism, but we see that circumcision was a shadow of circumcision of the heart. So we don't take the supper and say, well, the supper is just the New Testament version of the Passover. No, Jesus instituted the supper at Passover, but the Passover was a shadow of Jesus who is our Passover. And now he says, the supper is done in remembrance of me, not in remembrance of the Passover. He is the Passover, but the supper is in remembrance of him and instituted by him in the New Testament, so we interpret it by the New Testament. And baptism is the same way. That's why, again, our Baptist forefathers said in the catechism, we only baptize those that we see in like manner being baptized in the New Testament. The Old Testament washings may be a pre-runner or a shadow of the New Testament baptism, but again, we can't define New Testament baptism by the Old Testament. So we look at the New Testament and say, what did they do with converts? They baptized them. Did they baptize infants? No. Nowhere has it said that. Did they baptize households? Yes. But you can't make that leap and say, well, look, this man got baptized and his household without assuming that because of the ordinary means of grace, that man was saved and baptized. Somebody preached the gospel and somebody heard it in his household and they baptized them too. There's no way to assume these big jumps and leaps. Some of you may not care about this stuff, but I think, it's a, I think it's really awesome to see these things weren't done by accident. We think we're so advanced, and we've brought things so far along, but we're so far behind in understanding the doctrines that matter and, and grasping. These men, they stayed up at nights. They met for weeks and days to figure these things out, and how do we word this in such a way to let people know this is who we are and what we believe? Because they saw that it was important. And continuing, the confession says, to those baptized, it is a sign of the fellowship with Christ in his death and resurrection, of their being grafted into him. I love this language. beautiful. Hey, we have fellowship, which means union. When you're baptized, it is a symbol and a sign 
of the union that God has given you in Christ. You're united with him as if, as if being grafted in with him. It's also a sign of the remission of sins. Your sins have been forgiven, washed away, cast away, never to be remembered against you. That's a beautiful thought. When you were baptized, you can stand and look back at your baptism and say, Jesus washed away my sins. All of them. The ones I already committed, the ones I'm going to commit. All of them been washed away. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. We don't believe that if you die today without repenting of some sin you just did, that you're going to be punished for that. There is no condemnation. We're not Catholic. That's their point. We're not Catholic, but we're also not Presbyterians. We're Baptists. But above that, we're Christian. Because they did believe that the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists were their brothers and sisters. This was not a, you know, this was not a slap in the face. This is just, hey, this is who we are. This, that's who they are. This is who we are. We're all brothers and sisters. We're not fighting with them about that. Because here's what baptism really symbolizes. This is why they didn't, this is why they wouldn't baptize infants. This is a sign of your union with him in death and resurrection, being grafted into him of your forgiveness of sin and of your submitting to God. Again, why would you baptize an infant for the sign of submitting to God? I love the way the original 1689 in the Old English says, it is a sign of giving up unto God. I'm not sure there's a better way to define Christianity than giving up. What happened when you got saved? I just gave up. I was tired of trying. I was tired of thinking I could get to God. I was tired of thinking my good works would benefit me. I was tired of thinking that religion would save me. I was tired of thinking that one day I would get it all together and stop sinning. I just gave up somehow. I just surrendered to God. That's what the law does. Remember, it's put such a burden on us. It's the first use of the law. It puts such a burden on us that it causes us to look to Christ and have him lift it off. Because we'll never get out from under it. Jesus saved us from the law. That's why Paul concludes there in Romans 6, you're no longer under law but under grace. So let me say this. I think we have mixed up the ordinance, the ordinances of our Lord and made them sacramental much the way the Catholic Church has. We, A lot of places have, a lot of churches have. I don't have to name them. You know that there are many people who, in churches or so-called churches that teach a sort of sacerdotalism that if you do these things, they will lead to your salvation. There are many churches in our town right now that are teaching today. There's five, six, ten, eight things that you've got to do to be saved. Some of them are baptism. Some of them participate with the church. Some of them is this, this, and that. We have messed that up. We have taught people, a lot of people have, that by obeying, you get saved. And I think in an effort to distance ourselves as Baptists from those mixed up, in sacerdotalism, we've actually taken away the power of the ordinance itself and the blessing and the grace given to it through us because we don't want to, we're afraid to make much out of it. And that's why I'm saying, what I'm trying to do is call us back to making much of it. Because we ought to. We've put too much emphasis on, it's just a sign. Well, the supper is just a remembrance. No, it's a means of grace. It's a point at which God is growing you. You ought to be able to, at any point in your life, 
Listen, look back, not at a decision you made, not at a prayer that you prayed. Look back to your baptism. That is the sign of God that you've been, your sins have been remitted. You've been united with him, not only with him in his life, but in his death. That's why we baptize the way we do. If you read, if I'd have kept reading in our 1689 confession, the only acceptable means of baptism is immersion. Why? Because that's what we're symbolizing, the death. Just like Christ was buried, you are buried, the old Man, the old person is buried, never to live again, but you were raised to walk in the newness of life. It's a beautiful picture. In fact, if we go back to our text now, you'll see this very thing highlighted for us. Now, I remind you, Romans chapter 6 is in the context of chapter 5, where we learn about the covenant of works that Adam failed. And we learn about original sin, which we all inherited. And Paul concludes chapter 5 by saying, sin reigned in death, but now grace reigns in righteousness through Jesus Christ, leading to eternal life. And after making that statement, Paul anticipates the question. Some people would say, well, if death was... If sin was reigning in death, and that sin brought Jesus to us, then shouldn't we just continue to sin more so that we get more grace? And that's why chapter 6 begins the way it does. God forbid. No, by no means. By no means. And now I want to I walk down through this text as I wrap this up. But as I do, I want you to think through this in this way, in a law and gospel format. I want you to see law and gospel because they're both here. Law is a command or a requirement. So anytime you see the Bible saying, do this, it's law. But anytime you see that something has already been done, it's a statement of fact, completed, then that's gospel. So I want you to think through that. Law is a command. Gospel is a statement of fact, of completion. Shall we continue to sin? By no means. Look at this. How can we who died to sin still live in it? That's gospel. What happened to us? We died to sin. It's a done fact. Do you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, this, again, is talking about the spiritual thing that happened that you can't see. And this is why I want to emphasize this. We oftentimes put a lot of emphasis on, do you remember the day and the time and the hour and the minute when you got saved? I really don't know if I could put my finger on it, but I can remember when I was baptized. And that's a sign and a picture of what happened that I couldn't see. This is those physical emblems that God gives to us. That baptism... You remember what that felt like when you went under that water and you came up. I can't. Some people do. And God bless you if you remember when God changed your life and saved you. That's awesome. But what you can actually absolutely remember is when you were baptized. Because when you were, it's a picture of the fact that you were put into Christ's death. You were baptized with him, buried with him. It says, we were therefore buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. 
Again, gospel. This is gospel truth. This is what happened. This is what God did for us. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Gospel again, right? This is a statement of truth. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. This is gospel truth. You are no longer a slave to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. All this is what your baptism points to. If you died, you've been set free. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. It's gospel, gospel. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. So even though we die, yet shall we live, because Christ has. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Now, there's some law. This is something you've got to do. You've got to consider this. You say, I don't always consider that. I know. So go back to Christ and see who he is and what he's done. That's the point here. Some days you don't feel like, I don't feel like God loves me. I don't feel like God has saved me. Consider yourselves dead to sin. But I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not able to consider myself that. Well, go back and start at, chapter, at verse 1 and read back through. This is the gospel truth. Here's some more law. Let not sin reign in your mortal body. I don't want to do that, but sometimes I find it feels like it is raining. Don't allow sin to make you obey its passions. I know, but sometimes I do. Don't present your members of sin as instruments for right unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God. Again, this is law. These are things that we cannot do in our flesh. But then 14 says, sin will have no dominion over you because you're not under law but under grace. I think we've emphasized the wrong thing for too long. Remember your baptism. It's a big deal. Yes, I mean, God justified you. At some point, he... He opened your eyes and awakened you to who he is and the truth of the gospel and you were saved and born again. That's a glorious thing. All that your baptism points to. Remember your baptism. Remember what happened to make you be baptized. The truth of all that stuff that is emphasized there is what we celebrate in the baptism. So next time God blesses us and allows us to baptize one of our own, we're going to celebrate this more and more because this is what it points to. This is the reality. And every time you find yourself failing again and sinful again, go back to this. Look back to your baptism and remember what it points to. It points to the fact that you have been buried with Christ that you're dead to sin you're not a slave any longer in fact if we keep reading I think it's verse 18 that says you're now a slave to righteousness you say man some days I don't feel that way I know thanks be unto God that Jesus is our righteousness and again we don't do these things and practice these things to be made righteous 
The Bible is saying this is who you are, so practice these things. Do these things. Not to earn favor, but because God has given you favor. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Man, I don't, I don't, I'm not good at that. I know. That's why we have Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. Baptism is a big deal. In a few minutes, we're going to practice the Lord's Supper. It's a big deal. Because the presence of Christ is really with us. He blesses us and pours grace into us. And we grow spiritually the more we eat together this supper. Because we are eating the body of Christ. We are drinking the blood of Christ. Because it is the picture of all that he is and what he's done. And so is your baptism. That's why it's a means of grace. That's why it's important. That's why we practice it. It's good stuff. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you for your word. God, it's such a glorious thought, our baptism. It's such a glorious thing that it didn't bring salvation to us. It brought to light the salvation that has been brought to us. And it gives us this beautiful picture of what has happened, that which we cannot see. You've been so gracious to give us something we can see. Just like in the supper, we, we weren't there to see our Savior's body broken. We weren't there to see his blood shed. But through the emblems that you've given us, we experience it now. We see, we taste, and we fellowship together in the body and the blood of Christ. And so we did in baptism. And I pray for all those here that may be listening and have never followed you in baptism. I pray that you would give them grace that they would recognize that you are the Savior, the only mediator between God and man. And maybe they already have recognized that. I pray that you would help them today through this to be baptized as a sign of and a clear conscience before God because of what God is, you have done for us through Jesus Christ. We celebrate that in the supper today, but we also look back and celebrate in our baptism what you showed to us and what you continue to show to us every time another convert is baptized we are reminded of that day when we were baptized and the fellowship that we all enjoy in Christ so I pray you grow us by this in Jesus name Amen <laughs>